Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey, and I am joined here today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca will be telling us all about the case of the Redhead Murders, and Nicole will be educating us on the science of forensic taphonomy and forensic anthropology research centers, better known as body farms, and how they were instrumental in this case. And just to really switch things up, we're going to start with the science and then we're going to cover the case study in the second part. Um, let us know if you like this and we sh- we could um, alternate case study and science for episodes two. If that's something that you guys would like, we're just kind of trying it mm-hmm. out. Um, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of decomposition and dismemberment. And with that... I will hand it over to Nicole. Okay, so, sorry, I'm just trying to get, my setup's a bit different now that I've moved here. I can't see you guys at the same time. Um, But anyway, so to start, taphonomy examines the changes that occur from the time of death to the time of discovery, basically. So it's quite similar in a way to our, like, post-mortem interval changes, that we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. But this then means that forensic taphonomy is the various stages that the human body will go through during decomposition and any factors that affect it. And so that would then be like the study of that. And the word taphonomy comes from the Greek words tapho and nomos, with tapho meaning kind of around graves, burials, tombs, that sort of thing. And then nomos translates to law or custom. So when together we get the the study of burials and decomposition and how then they can be applied to the law. Forensic taphonomy is a subfield of anthropology and there are two major branches to it. So this includes biotaphonomy and geotaphonomy. And we'll kind of kind we'll kind of sorry focus a bit more on the biotaphonomy side of it. Um and so biotaphonomy has to do with examining remains and looking then to see how decom- decomposition actually affects the body and what processes are involved. And so biotaphonomic variables can then be divided into three further categories. And these are environmental factors, and these are including like external variables, so whether the environment's abiotic or biotic. Then there are individual factors which have to do with the body itself. So this would be the age and, say, weight of a body, among other variables. And lastly, there are cultural factors. And these are kind of more specific to the person. But the second branch of taphonomy, geotaphonomy, this looks at how bodies are buried and how bodies affect the surrounding environment. So rather than like the environment affecting the body, how does the body affect the environment? So this can include like include the disturbance of soils, any types of um, prints at the bottom. So you could get like a footprint maybe at the bottom of a grave, um, any altercations of, or erosion that has happened, um, the acceleration or deceleration of surrounding plant growth. So depending on the situation, you may see the stopping of growth in a specific area 
of say grass or flowers and you even have the alteration of pH levels in the surrounding soil that can be determined. That's really interesting because I hadn't thought of um, like the how the body has affected the earth as a part of the taphonomic processes. Like that's really interesting. Yeah, I always thought it was more so obviously like how the earth affects the body because all the research that I had done at least in second year, that's all I learned about was like how weather affects it, how all of this stuff. And it would be neat to see, like to delve further into the science. I don't know if obviously there's probably studies on it, but like those um, growth rate changes and like specific to certain like plants maybe or grass, like that would be so neat to me. No, that's really cool. So the field itself was kind of first brought about as a science in the 40s. Um, but it was originally as paleontology support, <laughs> surprisingly, and it was brought to be in an attempt to kind of explain how and why animals would be preserved and then become like fossilized in their given environments. And so then it was later on that the study then expanded to include processes that would affect decomposition, fossilization, burial, and also erosion. Um, so before kind of going into what exactly body farms are, I thought it would be helpful and kind of important to go over what it is that these researchers and scientists are almost like even investigating. Decomposition itself, I assume most of you kind of have an idea what it is, but it's defined as the process of tissue breakdown and is contributed to by the interaction of autolysis, which is basically like self-digestion by your own enzymes and also putrefaction which is essentially just decaying and it's often superimposed with insect activity and so depending on the sources you read and the author's geographic location of that source the stages associated with decomp vary between one and nine different steps Um, For the sake of this episode though I'm gonna go kind of with like the five key stages that are roughly the same throughout the majority of them. Um, And so these include the fresh stage, the bloated stage, active decay, advanced or post decay, as well as the skeletal stage. And so each stage is kind of self-explanatory, like a fresh stage being fresh and a skeletal stage being skeletons, but I'll go over each anyways. Um, With the first stage, the fresh fresh stage, Um, This is from the moment of death until bloating occurs. So some greenish discoloration can be seen here. And this is when insect activity most commonly begins. And this is like our, when we talked about entomology, it starts at the orifices, any wounds that are present. Um, But it also depends on where the body is and what environment it's in. So the next stage, the bloating, this is when anaerobic bacteria in the gut starts to digest surrounding tissue. And this ultimately prevents, or not prevents, produces gas, sorry. And then this obviously causes some bloating to occur. And this can be seen around the abdomen area. The beginning of this stage is really open to interpretation since it's just when the body becomes visibly bloated from sources that I've read. Um, But obviously, this can vary from person to person when assessing the body. So 
my interpretation of a bloated body is going to differ from say your interpretation journey, Rebecca, like there's really no number or quantifiable measurement to say, Oh, this is when the bloating stage starts. Um, which kind of sucks as a science, but it is what it is. Um, but body temperature is said to increase during this stage as well due to the bacterial activity. And some sources that I've read actually said that temperatures can rise up to 50 degrees Celsius in the body. And I thought that was insane. Like that just seems like a lot <laughs> for so a body to heat up by. They, yeah. So your body temperature increases by 50 degrees. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Right? Like 50 degrees, I would figure like maybe 10 degrees. Um, 50 seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah. Especially because everyone's like, oh, you're cold when you're dead. Exactly. But when you're decomposing, you're warm. Weird. Yeah. So for like, from my understanding, like you heat up before you cool down when you decompose. Right. Um, but next, the active decay stage. This is when the outer layer of skin kind of begins to break down and then this releases the gases that are within the abdomen that had caused the bloating. Um, And then next, the post-decay or advanced decay stage occurs when the body is further reduced to skin, cartilage, and bone. And then the last stage, the skeletal stage, is when the body becomes completely skeletonized and there's nothing left other than bone and then sometimes hair. And well, like I said, like these are generally the five steps to decomposition. There's obviously going to be some differences depending on your environment, your location, your climate, all of that. Um, And a lot of variables can influence the onset of each stage as well. So it's not like they all happen a certain, like a specific hour after the next stage almost. It just is super variable. Um, and quite difficult to study, which is why body farms became a thing that I'll talk about. Um, But for example, like physical and chemical barriers, so like formaldehyde or clothing even, these can um, slow down decomposition. And then you have climatic factors that also play an important role. So hot weather is going to speed up um, decomp, colder weather is going to slow it down. Um, I do have a question. Um, yeah. So you said there's no, like, like set timeline to the stages of decomp, but yep. do they always happen in the same order? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So there's, like you said, no set timing, but it's generally the same order. Like, you're not obviously going to have skeletonization before... Um, advanced decay like it's basically just a gradient effect and then each kind of gradient is up for interpretation by whoever's assessing the body if that makes sense yeah so they're kind of just like points on a spectrum where like each point is more defined by yeah something okay yeah that makes sense yeah and so like some some though like i'm thinking say keep hitting my mic say you're in water you may not you may surpass a stage a lot faster than a different one um like you may not have as much skeletonization if placed in water or it may occur much later down the line um so it's really dependent on 
a whole lot of factors, unfortunately. Yeah. Which makes it kind of tricky to pinpoint. Fair enough. Um, but so kind of like to illustrate that again, um, like buried bodies won't decompose as quickly as those open in open air, just because there's not as much that can affect it when it's underground. Um, and then temperatures below six degrees Celsius, this typically slows down and stops any insect activity, which will then further slow down that decomp process because they're not munching away on the body. Um, but when trying to determine the rate of decomposition, body temperature after death is the most important factor. And so it's also like, it's really important to understand the external environment, as I've been mentioning over and over again for this, because the postmortem body temperature is going to depend, like, if it's 40 degrees outside, you're obviously going to have a higher postmortem body temperature, which is going to affect your estimation on when they died almost. Um, and so another thing that affects us is that the more fat someone has in their body, the more insulating properties there will be. And so the cooling down process is then slowed down, meaning that the body temperature remains warmer for longer, which then speeds up like other things. So the hotter the body, the more stuff that's going on, the more enzymes that are breaking down, the faster that's going to go through decomp. I feel like I just counter contradicted myself in that sentence, but like, I don't know if that made sense. Does that make sense? (laughs) Kind of. Okay. Uh, to be honest, I was looking at something else, so I didn't hear the whole <laughs> sentence. <laughs> um, but okay. I did. But what you said was what I heard was that the more like activity that's going on within the body, enzyme wise, the breaking down of the body, the hotter you're going to be. Yeah, which makes sense because more energy is being produced and released via yeah, and- the breakdown of your fat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you for summarizing that. (laughs) You're so welcome. (laughs) Um, Well, now that we kind of have a better understanding about what decomp is and processes involved, kind of wanted to shift gears and go over like six main sources that contribute to kind of the most amount of postmortem changes that a body can undergo. And then these changes obviously have an influence on decomposition. But these include disfiguration, non-human animal scavenging, fire, weather, burial, and water. And, like, they aren't the only sources, obviously. There are others, such as, like, geological movements, um, volcanic shockwaves are on that and whatnot. Um, But they're a lot less common than the first six. So the first six are what are mainly studied um, and what we have the most information on. Um, what's a volcanic shockwave? Um, so think of Mount Vesuvius and when the eruption happened, that pyroclastic shock that happened. Okay. Like, it's just like a shock of power and heat. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of like when you open the oven and that heat just kind of like blows (laughs) you in your face, but like multiplied by a million. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know. (laughs) 
yeah, so you can kind of see how that would affect a body. Um, yeah, very much so. <laughs> very much so. Um, but anyways, disfiguration. Um, this also kind of includes dismemberment, or they are kind of synonymous with one another. Um, this can be done for a few reasons. It's said either to like prevent identification if um, the offender has like a lack of respect or remorse for a victim, they may dismember um, or to make transporting the body easier. And that's not to say these are always why people dismember their victims. This is just kind of the common theme that's come about. Um, but this can typically be noticed on bone through cut marks, any like superficial false start scratches um, and things that are called like breakaway bone spurs. And there are a whole other whole bunch of other sharp force trauma that can be seen on the bone, but those are kind of some major ones. And um, when cuts are seen to kind of cluster near or within that a joint region, this is said to be more of a generalized dismemberment. And this could be indicative of that like disregard for the victim. Um, I'm not sure if it's just like a willy nilly. I'm very mad. I don't like you. I'm going to, cut all of your limbs off, unfortunately to say, like, I don't know how to put it lightly. Um, but that's what it's been said to be for. And that's again, not all the time, just generally. Um, the separation of specific parts of the body. So these are like the head, hands and fingertips. This is known as localized dismemberment, and this can be indicative of an attempt to slow down identification and kind of hinder that investigation process. So, like, if you don't have any identifiable features, you're going to have a harder time identifying the victim. Um, when there are clean, precise, and well-chosen cuts seen around joints, this can also suggest that the offender has anatomical knowledge and or experience with butchery methods. Like a doctor is going to be able to dismember someone a lot easier than say I would, because I only have a course, one anatomical course under my belt, not a whole degree. Um, but in cases where disfiguration is present, some of the things that investigators will typically look for are like the direction of the cut, how many teeth of the blade are present, which can be seen in like the grooves um, in the bone. And then as well as things like the blade width and shape, which is pretty interesting. Um, but next, non-human animal sca scavenging is when animals consume the soft tissue of bodies they either will like gnaw on bones um, and sometimes will cause remains to become scattered. So even like if a bird picks up a piece of a body, they're going to maybe fly away with it and possibly drop that bone further on. Um, and if pieces tend to be eaten or happen to be eaten, they can also be spread through feces and defecation. But um, the most common scavengers in forensic contact in a forensic context, excuse me, are said to be domestic dogs and coyotes. Surprisingly, I would have thought birds, um, but my source said dogs. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, that was like at my forensic archaeology field school. Our 
um, pig part or whatever that he had buried was stolen by the coyotes. And yep. we didn't know until we had, like, excavated the entire, um, like, grave. And he was like, um, there's supposed to be pig bones in there. And we were like, yeah, oh, no. well, there's nothing. And he's like, oh, shoot. So they went to, like, the coyote den to make sure that there wasn't, like, just a random pair of pants. Because he, like, buried it in a pair of jeans. Because it wasn't, like, a full pig. It was just a piece of pig. Oh, And yeah. so we just kind of, like, put it in a pair of jeans because we were looking for these missing women in quotations that weren't real um but he's like yeah i need to go find a pair of pants so that someone doesn't go into the (laughs) den and think that the coyotes actually ate a real person (laughs) oh my gosh i love that he's just like yeah i'm just gonna go to the den like i know where the den is i'll be right back (laughs) because we were at like the conservation park and they knew where the den was and it was really cool because there was like like an otter skull or something and you could see the like gnaw marks from the teeth of the coyotes on the skull it was so neat really yeah it was really cool that's interesting yeah okay um but yeah dogs who would have thought um but yeah so carnivorous animals will leave a lot of marks on the body so like you said like those gnaw marks and stuff like that and this obviously can interfere with a post-mortem interval estimation and so like what can be seen are like punctures, um, any pitting present, a lot of splintering of the bone and fracture lines. And so the scavenging process has been pretty well documented. And so this reduces the probability that like, say you come across a disarticulated body. It's at the point now where investigators are able to determine oh, this disarticulation was caused by animals and this one was caused by human postmortem, um, which is kind of nice in the sense that you're not going to mistake human scavenging for human dismemberment, or sorry, animal scavenging with an- with human dismemberment. That was a tongue twister for my brain, it seems. Well, I mean, um, you want to differentiate between human scavenging and animal scavenging, yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm not really going to go into each step of the animal scavenging process because it is pretty outlined. Like this part is typically scavenged first and then this part next and kind of the process of body parts. Um, it's kind of gruesome. I figured, I know we talk about gruesome things, but it may be a lot for some people. And like when you think of animal scavenging or what you see in media, that's what happens essentially. Um, but I do want to kind of talk about the differences between animal predation and then that human disfigurement, not disfigurement, dismemberment. Um, and so again, this can help identify whether it was animal scavenging or humans that had caused the um, trauma. But anyways, dismemberment patterns don't typically involve the removal of the scapulae and clavicles. Um, So human dismemberment, this is often seen strictly with animal scavenging. Um, You're not, I mean, there's probably some sick a-holes out there that do or will remove them. But when you think of someone dismembering someone, you're not going to go, oh, I want your collarbone. I'm going to disarticulate your collarbone and your shoulder blades that's just typically an animal thing that's really interesting because i wouldn't have guessed that they would take the scapulae because i had envisioned the body placed on their back and Mm -hmm. so that seemed like 
a really hard to reach kind of spot for them to like get. Yeah. I think it also depends too. like what they'll do is like they go for, I mean, the clavicle makes sense if they're on their back, they get that. But once that like thoracic cage is open, you kind of have access to the back portions, the interior yeah. of your body. Posterior portions the of posterior, your body. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's like when I would imagine that it happens. I don't think it happens in all animal scavenging cases. Um, but that is kind of one of the key things that if that is present, it kind of makes light bulbs go off for investigators to be like, mm, okay, this may not be human dismemberment. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and also, so with human dismemberment, um, usually just the upper limb bones are removed if any dismemberment does happen. Sometimes the head in gruesome cases. But um, this there's more seen with animal scavenging. Like you're not just going to have the upper limb bones gone. You're going to have kind of everything scavenged with animals. And then other key differences are that the removal of the femur from the hip socket and any removal of the front of the chest. So any ribs, uh, your sternum, your clavicles, all of that. These are also indicative of scavenging because this is rare with human dismemberment. Like aside from that one criminal minds episode of the guy who like collects human ribs and makes wind chimes out of them. Humans aren't really collecting other people's ribs. So that's more of an animal thing. Well, how boring. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's no fun. Um, and lastly, any small bones that can be swallowed. So a lot of your like hand bones and again, your sternum, any of those kind of things, this will exhibit or these will exhibit taphonomic changes when they're scavenged. So they'll often be found farther from the scene in animal poop. And because it's gone through the whole digestive process, there's going to be some changes seen to that bone that may not be present on other bone that was scavenged and say just like gnawed on um but anyways that's all for scavenging so next is fire and fire is probably the most destructive post-mortem changes that can be seen with bodies just because of how hot and how much it does um this can present itself as discoloration in the bone shrinking cracking warping distortion can be seen there's just a whole bunch of stuff that can happen um and then the temperature of the fire as well as the kind of like the initial source of that fire can be determined through skeletal examination and then the series of events and timeline of the burning can be actually predicted based on various color changes and any trauma that's seen to the bone um so i did a bit of a presentation on this last semester hopefully I remember most of it but basically like you start off as your normal bone color which is like a yellowy wet bone (laughs) um and then depending on the heat and how long it's been burning you end up with a charred bone but then you can also have calcified bone which is like white white bone um and it's very much like if you touch it it'll crack it's very much like a um 
a ceramic type consistency um, or texture, sorry. So it's kind of neat that different temperatures and different body compositions and there's a whole lot of other factors that can influence how fire burns and how it's going to impact bone, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And then there's also weather. So weather kind of has similar effects on bone as fire, just not really as extreme. Um, And so cracking and discoloration can be seen again, um, but they do present themselves a bit differently, which is useful in trying to figure out what is fire damage and what is weather damage. Um, So when it comes to weather, obviously there's multiple elements that can happen, but wind will actually or can cause sandblasting effect on bone, um, especially over like a prolonged period of time, just the consistent wind and like bringing dirt up to hit the bone and stuff like that actually will sandblast bone which was pretty cool and after a certain amount of time it can pretty well just disintegrate bone um obviously rain results in the rehydration of dried bone um and then the sun which is a major source of post-mortem changes this can cause a few different things to happen to bone um but shrinking can occur when evaporation happens which is also similar to fire Cracking can be seen as the cortical bone will shrink more quickly. And then the topmost layer of bone can actually separate and start to flake off, which will further expose the underlying bone. And then disintegration can also happen due to like, oops, I just hit my mic, due to long-term flaking. I need to learn how to not talk with my hands so I'm not hitting my mic after like every sentence. Oh my goodness. Anyways, um, next is when bodies are buried. And there are two main effects seen on bone when this happens. So again, these are like the cracking and warping, which is present with weather and fire. But there's also the erosion of cortical bone seen. And so the cracking and warping can be distinguished from any sort of other blunt force trauma or sharp force trauma, since there's not going to be any impact point present. So say you have cracking and fractures from being hit with a baseball bat, like you have that impact site where the cracks are going to radiate out from. But with um, the cracking scene with burying, it's just sporadic. There's no one spot that can be said to start all of the other cracks. Um, but bone deformation can also be seen due to varying pressures present under soil in addition to the presence or absence of erosive soil acids. And lastly, water is a main cause of postmortem changes to the body as well, as there can be damage during kind of any form of transportation. So this would be like going downstream, for example, um, which can cause a lot of abrasion to the bone. But there are three kind of main phases that a body will go through when in water. Um, First is fluvial transport. This is when the body is moved from where it was initially placed in the water to a different location. And this is caused by currents and what are called eddies. And these can influence how much a body can move and how little a body moves, I guess. Um, 
But initially, a body will typically sink first as air will escape from the lungs. And at the bottom, this is where damage can occur when you come into contact um, and scrape across, say, rocks or other objects on that floor or the whatever it's called, the waterbed floor, waterbed. I don't know what they're called. Um, I think just like floor of like the river or. Yeah. Because it's the floor of the ocean, is it not? Yeah, that's what I thought. But I didn't know if it was different for like lakes or streams because there's so many different like bodies of water that kind of can influence it or bodies can be placed in. Yeah, because the floor of the river doesn't really sound right. But uh, Right? Well, we'll go with that, I guess. (laughs) I'll just say the bottom. The bottom of the water. (laughs) (laughs) Um, After a period of time, um, the bacteria that's present in your intestines will begin to multiply and produce gas, kind of seen with that um, bloating stage of decomp. And so this bloating will cause the body then to rise to the surface of the water. And this then causes, um, well, not causes, but the body then can move a bit more and continue to further move down um, with any current. If a current is present, I don't know if it's in stagnant water or not. Um, But during this phase, separation can actually happen. So this is with like the skull, the mandibles, like your jaw, and your hands will typically um, separate first. And then your lower limbs and then the remainder of your arms will separate afterwards. But when separation does occur, the torso actually tends to travel more than the limbs because of this increased buildup of gas. Uh, I would have thought gas would escape once limbs were no longer attached, but I guess not. Um, Who would have thought? I mean, like, I guess unless your intestines were, like, punctured, but, like, Yeah. yeah, no, I follow your train of thought. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I would have, like, if you, I don't know how to be, like, sensitive about this. Like, I feel like it's very insensitive what I'm saying. But, like, if you're just a torso, you have, you have like, injuries to where your limb joints are. So yeah. would there not be any opening in the, at least, to let air out? You would think... But or like just like because of the sphincters, everything's just closed off and it's yeah. in the, the digestive tract. That like must be it. But lastly, individual bones um, do have the capacity of moving different dif- different distances. So rounder bones, um, like your skull, will tend to travel greater distances than flatter bones. Um, and these flatter bones will be more likely to be found where the body was first placed into the water. And I didn't really, well, slash, I was lazy to really look further into this, but I assume it's because that, like, when the flat bone is lying flat, there isn't much surface area for the water to kind of grab a hold and hit the bone to move it. Whereas circular bones or rounder bones, there's more surface area and they're more easily to kind of roll with the current. Um like that's just my speculation, but because of this, that flat bones um, don't move all that much. It can kind of help determine where a body was initially placed into water if the body is no longer there or found 
down river or downstream somewhere else. Um, and in some cases, actually, too, there's been movement of up to 50 plus miles that have been reported. And this is just over 80 kilometers um, when you convert them, which is a lot, I thought. That's a lot of area to, like, search for the mm-hmm. rest of the body. Right? Yeah. And also um, another thing, I just wanted to say, um, when you were talking about how much uh, damage the bones can have just to, like, being, or just from being buried and stuff, mm-hmm. it was really interesting because I remember learning that and being like, oh my gosh, like, bones actually, like, experience quite a bit of, like, wear and tear and they're not in this perfect condition that I had always seen on bones. And that was probably the thing that surprised me the most that I learned, like, during my degree. Well, yeah, I I never really thought of that. Like, I always think bones are buried in a casket, but obviously that's not the case. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I never would have considered, obviously, you're going to have that extra weight and pressure of soil compressing that bone. Yeah. Which is super neat. No, that was the craziest thing that I learned was just how much wear and tear that can happen to the skeleton. Mm -hmm. Just from being buried, not even, like, anything else. And I was like, that's crazy because it's not shown on any TV show. No. Did you see, like, did you have enough bone during your field school to see that? Or was it not there long enough? No, they took our entire thing. Oh. We didn't have any bone. That's unfortunate. I know, it's kind of sad. <laughs> did you get your money back? I would have pulled a full, like karen and been like give me my money back i did not get the (laughs) learning that i was told i'd get (laughs) no once we're like a foot and a half down and he's like you guys still haven't found anything we're like yeah he's like um okay well you're doing Uh this wrong and i'm like i'm digging down i don't know what you want from me (laughs) oh my god yeah you're doing it wrong like what do you want me to do dig up like there's (laughs) yeah i was like i'm i have my paintbrush it's day three like there's nothing here he's like okay yeah that's fair that's hilarious. Um, okay. Anyways, now we've kind of covered the basics of decomp and various factors um, that can obviously affect a body postmortem. Now let's get into the fun part of what body farms are and how they are useful. So body farms aren't the technical term. They're just easier to say. I'm kind of going to be swapping between like facility and body farm. Um, but basically... They're anthropology facilities, and they're pretty much just a large piece of land where researchers and people who have donated their bodies will be, like, bodies will be placed sporadically throughout the land. And this is where researchers will study how they decompose in different scenarios. So as gruesome as it is, um, but as a research point of view, it's super cool, you can have, like, in one farm or one facility say like a body in a car trunk decomposing in with the sun heat another body like a couple meters away in a barrel of water seeing how water like stagnant water affects that like another hanging from a tree where scavengers are getting to it like that kind of thing like it's a very morbid and very horror movie-esque But it's super interesting from a research standpoint because you're not going to get that level of, um, like, different scenarios and different environments 
until you come across a case, like an unfortunate case in law enforcement where you have to try and solve that. Um, but that being said, the purpose of having these facilities is to gain further insight into how human bodies decay in these different conditions. Um, and they also actually provide training to law enforcement on um, procedures to recover remains at crime scenes, given these different horrific things. Like, so obviously not all crime scenes are going to be the same and they're not going to be very like clear cut or just buried. Like some people are pretty effed up in what they do. So some bodies are going to be harder to recover. So it's really important to be able to have a rough idea on postmortem intervals in these different situations or situations that may be similar to it because like if they know PMI intervals for different bodies in a barrel of water, that can be useful in, say, a body found in a pool that was covered or something like that. Like they can kind of guesstimate times that way. Um, but these body farm facilities were thought of by Dr. William Bass. He is a renowned osteologist, and he became the head of the Tennessee Univer- or University of Tennessee's Anthropology Department in 1971. He's actually still alive today. I think he's 91. Um, he founded the very first anthropological research facility, which is also known as ARF, um, and their donor program was established in 1981. So his idea to create this ARF sprouted when he was asked to consult on a case with local law enforcement. There was a Civil War era grave um, in their region that had recently been disturbed, but investigators had noticed that the body inside had actually looked pretty fresh, like as fresh as a body buried can kind of look. Um, and they ex- they ex- What's the word I'm thinking of? They didn't think that it was Colonel William Shy, whose name was on the grave because he was a Civil War soldier, not a recent deceased man. Um, so it was, ex- it was suspected that the someone had murdered this individual. Um, they disposed of the body in William Shy's grave in an attempt to cover up the crime. And upon examination, Dr. Bass estimated the remains to have been only about like a year old in the grave, but with further examination and analysis of the teeth in clothing and of the skeleton, they actually found out that it was indeed William Shy, who was a Civil War um, soldier. And I guess because of how tightly his iron casket was sealed, as well as his embalming, that's what caused his body to seem so like fresh, I guess you could say. And so it actually resulted in a 113-year difference in a time of death estimation, which was a lot. So he was, like, buried, and then 113 years later, they looked him up, and he was still, like, fresh. They thought he had been buried within the last year. Yeah. So I don't know if, like, grave robbers had come and, like, disturbed his grave or something like that and, like opened up the casket. Right. Um, but yeah, after over a hundred years, it had only looked like maybe just over a year old decomp. That's incredible. Right? Because well like when you think about it, if it's tightly sealed iron casket, like nothing's getting in. 
Yeah. So there's no bacteria. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. And this is kind of... <laughs> I'm just shocked. That's cool. No, no, no. No, it's neat. Like, I agree. And it this is kind of, like, off topic. I don't have it in my notes. But there was a study that was done um, when I did my project on taphonomy a couple of years back that I found. And what they had done is they examined the decomp of pig carcasses in diff- like in various varying levels of concrete burial so they had one like fully encased in concrete they had like two feet below ground kind of thing up to no concrete at all just lying on the ground and they found out that the when comparing the fully encased carcass with the one that was just out this like the level of decomp seen with the fully encased one was similar to like a third or like a third of the time frame of the open air decomp one, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it had been like buried for months, but it it didn't have that same level of decomp, like nowhere close to that same Because there was, yeah, no air to... Mm-hmm. Wow. That's cool because right? I would have thought that it would have like decomposed a little bit more just due to like the concrete's like corrosiveness. Like I thought it kind of would have aided away, but I guess once it dries, you're pretty much done. Yeah, exactly. So and like cool. I feel like I don't know, I don't know anything about concrete, but I feel like it would have a very cooling effect, especially if they did then bury the like slab underground which would slow down decomp a lot more too. I think concrete, when it's drying, it releases heat. Okay, that's what I thought. I don't know that it would cool it, but I know that it's typically cool to the touch. Mm -hmm. Like once it's dry. But again, I'm not a cement worker, so I don't know. (laughs) Anyone who works with concrete, let us know. Please. Anyways, so when he found this out, Dr. Bass had consulted a whole bunch of literature. Well, I say whole bunch. There was literally almost no literature around it. He tried uh, consulting it, but he did notice a huge lack of it. Um, And this is what actually gave him the idea to start this research facility. And he had also said to, um, he had done work in, I want to say Texas. No, somewhere else. He had done work there. And the climates were very different. So he was noticing um, in Tennessee, it's a lot more humid. So there was a lot more like fresh decomposing bodies. Whereas where he was previously, it was a lot of skeletonized, dry heat mummification type bodies. And so this fascinated him. And so when he found this out with the whole um, Civil War era grave, he was like, we we really need research on this. So he kind of went to the Dean of Science um, at the University of Tennessee and basically was like, I need a plot of land and bodies. <laughs> and they were like, okay. Um, so the research facility at the University of Tennessee became the first outdoor natural lab to study human decomposition. And so before this facility – Um, And before using humans to examine human decomposition, pigs were often used, um, like I said, with that concrete study, because they're said to be the best human proxy. And this is kind of due to their size, their skin thickness, hair, insect activity. Everything kind of is in the same range between humans and pigs that you'd find with like 
it's going to be different for cows, for example. Um, but in addition to all of this, another thing that kind of contributed to the interest in body farms was in 1994, the author Patricia Cornwell, or Cornwall, sorry, she actually published a book titled The Body Farm, and it was the fifth book in a series of hers. And like I said, this kind of sparked more interest in the field and subject. And so the book's about an FBI agent that's investigating the murder of an 11-year-old, and the agent actually turns to a, quote, clandestine research facility in Tennessee known as the Body Farm, end quote, to find answers, um, which I thought was really cool because they actually used, like, well, I say the Tennessee facility fiction, but um, she played off of that for her book, which is neat. Um, and by 2018, the Tennessee Anthro Research Facility had over 1,800 bodies donated, 1,700 skeletons donated, and there are over 4,000 people that have signed up to donate their bodies and like to wait to be on a wait list essentially for when they die. They want to give them their bodies for research, um, which is kind of neat. That I thought about very it. Very cool. Right? Like I thought about it when I was reading this. It's like, that would be kind of cool to have my body like <laughs> decompose in different ways, but <laughs> kind of also morbid to think about. I know. I want to donate my body to science and then donate my skeleton to Smeo so that I can live on forever. <laughs> I like you to help people like um because we have such a huge or not huge but like we have quite a few real human skeletons so I thought why don't I be one of those and help future forensic anthropologists learn isn't there a lot of like ethics behind getting human skeletons though I remember Michelle being like we have a whole bunch of human skulls and she's like yeah we got them no problem but now a little bit of red tape around some stuff yeah, there's a lot more, um, like, hoops you have to jump through now to get a human skeleton. And they're quite expensive, even if you are able to jump through those hoops. But yeah. I believe if, like, if I was to donate my skeleton there, mm -hmm. then it wouldn't be that big of an issue. Yeah. Um, but I haven't but looked into it at all. Maybe I'll just, like... If I'm still alive after you pass away, I'll get your skeleton in a bag and just, like, hand it to the Dean of Science and be like, here you go. <laughs> I have a donation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that'll be, that'll work. But yeah, that won't seem sketchy no, at all. Not at all. No, because they'll have this episode to, like, go yeah. listen to and they'll be like, okay, well, yeah, this is how they thought of it. Exactly. This is, like, our legal signing of our, <laughs> of the yeah. donation of Journey's body. <laughs> <laughs> I hereby decree. It's <laughs> amazing. Okay, well, aside from all of those donations, um, there have actually been a lot of other facilities and body farms to have opened up since the original one. So in 2007, West Carolina University's Forensic Osteology Research Station was founded, and this also became a training ground for cadaver dogs. A year later, in 2008, Texas State University founded a facility, and this is the largest um, body farm to exist. At least when I did research, it is. Um, it's 26 acres of land. And a second facility did open up in Texas as well. 
Um, so there are two facilities in Texas at two different um, sites, but others in Illinois, Colorado, South Florida, and Northern Michigan have also opened up and each kind of have their own different climate and environment. So it's helping them kind of expand research in those areas. Um, but it wasn't until 2016 that the first body farm outside of North America was founded. And this was founded in Australia and it's known as the um, Australian facility for taphonomic experimental research. And a year later, Amsterdam opened up kind of like their version of a body farm. Um, they were given approval to study how bodies decompose in shallow graves. Um, so rather than having bodies kind of strewn about, they are more focused on various factors on how um, bodies will decompose in shallow graves, as the name suggests. Um, but lastly, in 2021... Um, Canada actually opened up their very first body farm in Quebec with five bodies being, have already been donated and being studied since August of 2021. Um, I think they were set to open up in like the spring of 2019, but it just kind of seemed to be pushed back. At least the last article I read was from 2021 and that's when it said that that's when they got donations. Um, but this Canadian facility actually gives researchers the opportunity to look how nor look at how northern climates affect decomposition, um, especially since temperatures there uh, and a lot of other parts of Canada, uh, temperatures in winter can reach a whopping negative 40 degrees, which mm -hmm. is gross. Um, but obviously this is going to impact decomposition a lot differently than, say, Tennessee winters um, with the winters they get. Yeah, um, um, and I think the Quebec facility was also opened by the person who opened the Australian Australia. facility, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I forgot to mention that. Um, yeah, because she wanted to know how obviously the cold region affects uh, decomp in similar ways or different ways. Um, I think it would be neat to see like true northern facilities. Like, obviously, I don't think any would be in Nunavut or like the Yukon and stuff like that. But I think it would also be neat to see like, um, what are they called? Like sub, uh, not tundra, but like permafrost or stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Like those kind of regions, um, to see how that would influence because there have been cases where not Neanderthals, but very, very old people have been found in ice. Yeah. Um, not really decomposed at all. No, that would so. be really interesting. Or even just, like, very north Quebec. Yes. Because it's pretty close to the Arctic Circle, isn't it? It gets pretty high up there? I believe it does, yeah. Okay, yeah, I could see you nodding, and I was like, I think I'm on the right track. <laughs> but kind of like before these facilities, we didn't have really a way to study these taphonomic changes on such a large scale, um, so they've really helped advance what we know about specific processes that accompany decomposition, um, in addition to learning just a number of things in general that are useful to police investigations um, and how they can like kind of 
better estimate time of deaths in different situations they may come across. Um, In addition, these body farms have also provided more insight and understanding to food chains, which I thought was interesting. They've gained a lot more knowledge, um, basically going from bacteria to large scavengers and that whole chain in between, um, as well as their effects on the body. And a small little tidbit, I know we talked about the concrete study, um, but another study that I kind of laugh at that came about through one of these body farms was that um, (laughs) researchers were examining how weather would affect bone. So there were just a whole bunch of skeleton bodies um, laid out in grass and somehow maintenance, a maintenance crew member (laughs) was not aware of this and decided to mow the lawn that these bodies were in obviously unauthorized. Like he would not have been given permission to, if he had asked. Um, So this accidentally caused or resulted in him running over three of the skeletonized bodies that were just laying about. Um, So scientists obviously were not happy, but while they were picking up the remains, they did happen to notice certain dispersal patterns of the bones And so scientists being scientists, they were like, oh, let's make a study out of this. Um, So they ended up just running over a bunch of pig carcasses with different types of lawnmowers to see how each kind of mower would affect dispersal patterns. Um, So they found that riding lawnmowers caused kind of a bullseye type pattern. A rotary push mower has caused or rectangular pattern, excuse me. And mulching mowers resulted in smaller, condensed circle dispersal patterns. So even though it was a bit of an F up on the maintenance guy's part, uh, I kind of get a laugh out of the fact that they were like, oh, yeah, let's just actually make a study and run over some more things with these mowers. That's one of my favorite studies. I know we talked about it in like one of our first episodes, but it's just it never gets old. It's just like... Yeah, typical scientists who are like, oh, oops, wait, actually, this is a good experiment. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, "Uh, it's novel. No one's done it. Let's get some lawnmowers. Right? And it's information that we will need someday. Exactly. Who, Mm -hmm. you know, people accidentally run over their feet all the time. Maybe they'll accidentally or purposefully run over a body to, like, get rid of it. Exactly. But yes, I've been droning on for a very long time now. So that is all I have for Tophonomy and Decomp and Body Farms. Well, thank you. I forgot how much I am fascinated by Tophonomy and Body Farms. And it's just so fun. I agree. Yeah. Um, So thank you for sharing your information. I loved it. I hope everyone else did too. Um, And now I'm going to pass it on to Rebecca to tell us more about the Redhead Murders. Thank you uh, very much. So just to briefly get started, the term Redheaded Murders uh, refers to a string of murders that was occurring in multiple states in the 80s and 90s. Uh, So they happened in Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Pennsylvania, Um, And these all happen pretty much except for like one or two along a few of the major highways that connect all of these states. Uh, So they're dubbed the redheaded murders because many of the victims had red hair, although not all of them did, as I'll get into a little later. Um, 
This case is a bit of a tough one for a couple reasons. First, not all of the victims, and actually most of the victims, still to this day, even though being discovered in the 70s, 80s, 90s, have not been identified. Uh, So they're still just considered Jane Doe's, unfortunately. Second, there's never been a killer connected to these murders, despite multiple suspects being discovered throughout the investigation, they've been ruled out. Um, So third, even though there are some similarities between the cases, uh, there's also a lot of inconsistencies that suggest that not all of these may be related as we initially believed. Uh, But I'll get into this just a little bit later. So due to the fact that all of the, not all, but most of the victims have been unidentified um, and there's not much information regarding the investigation itself. I will just kind of be going into uh, descriptions of the women, how they've been found, um, and the kind of evidence that is similar and dissimilar between all of them. Uh, So just getting into it first, we'll talk about the first victim who was found by an elderly couple when they were driving down Route 250 of North Carolina on the 13th of February in 1983. As they were driving along the road, they saw that um, what they hoped was just a mannequin, um, but being good, concerned citizens, uh, they wanted to make sure that it was nothing more than a mannequin they had seen. So they turned around, drove back down the road, and unfortunately, when they got out to check, they discovered that that wasn't the case, and they had actually just found the fully clothed body of a woman who was between the ages of 30 and 45 years old, as the autopsy confirmed. Uh, And she also had auburn colored hair, which is kind of like a deep reddish brown. So the autopsy had revealed that she had been deceased for about two to three days prior to discovery. But investigators believe that her body was actually only placed there within a couple hours of being discovered as Littleton, which is the town that she was found just outside of, had just received some snowfall over the past couple days. But her body had no snow on top of it. And there were also visible tire and foot tracks found nearby the body. So the autopsy couldn't confirm the method of death. However, they did determine that there was no evidence of sexual assault. They were able to rule out strangulation because there was no ligature marks or bruises around her neck, uh, but they were not able to rule out suffocation. So to this day, unfortunately, uh, her body is one that has not been identified. The following victim, uh, so the second one, was not found until the following year. This was on the 16th of September in 1984 by a hitchhiker who was uh, along the Interstate 40 of Arkansas. The body of a young woman was found by this hitchhiker. Uh, She had strawberry blonde hair, and she was found uh, partially nude. She was only wearing a knitted sweater. Once again, the autopsy had found no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted, but they did determine that she had died by strangulation, and she did go unidentified for about a year, uh, just shy of it, actually. It was nine months, um, because in June of 1985, a couple who was living in a home in Florida had actually identified her as their former roommate, whose name was Lisa Nichols. 
With the identification, police were able to confirm that Lisa Nichols, uh, at the time of her disappearance, was only 28 years old. She was working as a sex worker at the time of her disappearance, um, and it's believed that she'd gone identified for nearly a year because she had been estranged by her family years before because she did have struggles with addiction and was working as a sex worker. She was last seen alive at a truck stop near Shearville in Arkansas on the 12th of September that year. And around midnight, she was seen entering a semi-truck with two men, but this is the last time that she had ever been seen. So the next victim um, was found on New Year's Day of 1985 on the uh, Interstate 75 of Campbell County, Tennessee. This third victim also had red hair. It was curly. Um, and she also had freckles, was, sorry, and she also had freckles and she was 10 to 12 weeks pregnant at the time of her death. Similar to the first victim, she was found fully clothed. However, she was barefoot and wrapped in a blanket and her her shoes were found nearby her body. The autopsy had confirmed that she, like the second victim, had unfortunately been strangled, um, But after finding her, police released a drawing of her to the public in hopes of being identified. But unfortunately, at the time, the sketch didn't actually lead to any identifications. So it wasn't until over 30 years later that she was identified. And this was thanks to the use of forensic taphonomy. Um, So after being discovered... um, Her body was moved to the University of Tennessee's Forensic Anthropology Center, which, as Nicole had said earlier, was the first taphonomy center uh, or body farm um, in the United States. Uh, Nicole, I'm not positive if you had said in the world. Yeah, just in general. Yes. Okay. Okay. So she was uh, transported after her discovery and after the initial investigation to this body farm, and it was there that her body was left to fully decompose until just her skeleton remained, and she was then curated until they could conduct um, a more in-depth analysis on her skeletal remains. So after analysis of the skeleton, um, personally, I am a little unsure of how they did this, but I am assuming both through anthropological techniques and DNA evidence, and I did also see something about fingerprints, but I was not quite sure where they were getting the fingerprint evidence in this situation. Uh, She was identified as Tina Farmer of Indianapolis, Indiana. It was discovered that uh, Tina Farmer had left her family home at the age of 21 years old on Thanksgiving of 1984. Um, So this was less than a year after being discovered. And she was last seen leaving with a trucker. um, And her parents were concerned about this. So they reported her missing. Um, But despite reporting her missing and the police writing up a missing persons report, they didn't share this information with any of the other jurisdictions. So there were not many people actually aware of her disappearance outside of their city. Um, So this is likely one of the reasons that she wasn't identified much, much sooner. Yeah, that's something that's kind of a downfall for the United States, like criminal justice system is that the police like jurisdictions they don't communicate and so which other killer was it that I think it was like Ted Bundy or someone they were able to kill in many different states but none of them were connected because the police jurisdictions or departments just didn't talk to each other yeah like it's even with this case it happened in like 
four or five different states. And if they actually communicated with each other, there's a chance that maybe there wouldn't be as many victims. Um, the FBI did get involved, but obviously they got involved slightly too late because there'd already been so many victims. Yeah. Um, so after finding the body of who we now know is Tina Farmer, in 1985, police had identified a person of interest. His name was Jerry Leons Johns. He was 26 years old, and he was a trucker around the states that the victims had been found. He was just arrested for the kidnapping and attempted murder of a woman with reddish-colored hair, so they thought he could be connected to these crimes. Um, it was said that uh, he had strangled this woman and left her body near a highway in Texas, um, however, he believed that she was deceased, but she was actually just unconscious. And when she came to just on the side of the highway, uh, she managed to go to police and report what had happened. Um, it was found that she was an exotic dancer at a club in Texas, and he had been one of the patrons to this club. Uh, after talking, she had agreed to go with him to his hotel um, however, at some point we are uncertain of whether they were in the club or at his hotel. Um, but I believe at his hotel, Johns had told her that he was actually a Texas Ranger working in the narcotics department and he then drew a gun on her. Um, she then asked if he would take her back to the club. So he did. However, instead of letting her get out and back into her own vehicle, um, he left, he kept her in the truck ripped her shirt apart and used the scraps of her shirt to bind her hands and feet together, um, where he then attempted to strangle her and then brought her to the side of the highway, strangled her once again with her shirt, believed she was deceased, and then left her there. So um, through the investigations, it was actually discovered that Jerry Leon's Johns was not a Texas Ranger, but he was actually, um, the owner of a trucking company in the United States. Um, so after looking into all of his personal truck logs, receipts from all the stops he had made when driving, and also all of his alibis, it was determined at the time that he couldn't have been responsible for the murders of the previous three victims. Um, so they, let him go for that crime, but they didn't actually let him go totally because he did still kidnap and attempt to murder um, a woman. Uh, so he ended up two years later being sentenced to 73 years in prison uh, where he died in 2015. So before I continue further, I just want to say that there are a few murders in 1985, and not all of them have been confirmed to be connected to the Redhead murders. In addition to this, some of them were easier than others to find information on, which is why some of the couple might be a little more vague than they already have been. Um, I'm surprised by how varying the information is source to source on this case. Um, so on the 24th of February in 1985, the body of a girl with reddish colored hair was discovered fully clothed, this time in Mississippi. The autopsy revealed that she too had been strangled and she was also possibly sexually assaulted. However, they did say that without prior information about her, she was still unidentified. They were hard, it was hard to confirm whether or not she had been sexually assaulted or she had consensual uh, relations in the days leading up to her death. Uh, to this day, this victim as well is unidentified. 
The next occurred on March 31st of 1985. Uh, and this time, the skeletal remains of another fully clothed woman were discovered just off of Interstate 24 in Tennessee. There were some red hairs still with the skeleton, which is how they knew that it was a red-headed woman. Um, and the autopsy revealed that she had likely been deceased for about two to five months prior to being found and was likely between the ages of 31 and 40 years old. I was unable to find information regarding how she had killed as well as any like other evidence of types of violence against her. Um, but I take it um, based on the fact that she was at that time, uh, just skeletal remains, uh, they wouldn't have been able to confirm any of those details based on an autopsy. So just one day after the discovery of the woman on the I-24 in Tennessee, on April 21st, the body of another woman was found inside a fridge, and she was just barely in the forest off of Route 25 in Kentucky. This woman was found wearing only a, a pair of short white socks and also had a couple pieces of jewelry, such as two necklaces and a ring. Um, and the autopsy had showed that she had died by suffocation sometime between one and four days prior to being found and was between the ages of 25 and 40 years old. Despite not being positively identified at the time, witnesses did report seeing a woman that looked like her description, trying to catch a ride to North Carolina from a truck stop in Kentucky, and 500 people had attended the unidentified victim's funeral. In 2017, a woman came forward after reading about this Jane Doe case, saying that the, unidi sorry, the unidentified victim was her mother. Uh, she said this based on similar characteristics, uh, like her facial features and such, and also that her mother, she remembered, had uh, the same necklace that the victim was found wearing. So after DNA testing, it was determined that this uh, girl was the daughter of the unidentified victim. Um, and so she was found to be at the time, 28 year old um, SB Regina black pilgrim of North Carolina. The next victim was found in relation to the other victims in a bit of an odd spot. Um, it wasn't just off of an interstate like all of the others. Um, on the 3rd of April in 1985, just two days after the previous victim had been discovered, a hitchhiker was walking in Campbell County, Tennessee, um, near an abandoned strip mine. I am not positive why he was near an abandoned strip mine. I don't know if this was like nearby to other things or he just hitchhiked to the middle of nowhere, but that's beside the point. He was hitchhiking near an abandoned strip mine, and he came across the partial remains of a young girl. In total, just the skull and 31 other bones were found of her in this location, and they were found to belong to a girl just between the ages of 9 to 14 years old. That's really young. Yeah, it's very different than the rest that we've been seeing. Yeah, is that the youngest victim? It is, yeah. yeah. The youngest that we know of, right. anyways. Yeah. So, due to how little of her remains were discovered, it is said that um, this is the victim that we know the least about of information on. The autopsy couldn't determine how she had died, but they did say that she, based on her skeletal remains, had likely been deceased for between one and four years prior to being found, and based on her anthropological traits, was likely not from the area, but instead from a Midwestern or Pacific Coast state of the U.S. 
So the information on when the next victim was discovered uh, slightly varies, um, but it was at some point in 1985 after the previous victim, just about between one day and two weeks after they were found. Um, so this victim was found near Interstate 81 in Greene County, Tennessee. At the time of her discovery, she was nude and the coroner had estimated that she had been deceased likely for two to three weeks prior to discovery. The autopsy also revealed that she had likely died due to blunt force trauma and there was also a possible stab wound present on her body. Unfortunately, following the sad theme of this timeline, the victim uh, like many others, was also never identified. However, she was estimated to be six to eight weeks pregnant prior to her death, and she was just 14 to 21 years old and had strawberry blonde hair. Um, do you think it would be possible, I know you're probably going to talk about like suspects and stuff, but do you think that um, they all kind of had the same like baby daddy? Because I know this girl was pregnant and another one was pregnant, but do you think that he was not happy with them and then instead of like getting an abortion or something he just killed the women it could be a possibility because sources did say that a lot of these victims were suspected um sex workers who did frequent truck stops which is why it's believed that a trucker is responsible for these killings right um but they didn't ever specify on whether or not like pregnancies were related in these situations yeah um, so there's one more victim that I'll discuss today as these were, uh, the list of victims that they say are confirmed to be part of the redhead murders, although there are more that are suspected. Um, but this next one is that of another unidentified woman. And this time she was found on the border of Alabama on December 26th of 1988, she was also found fully clothed and she also had red hair and not much more information is known about her at this time either. Like many of the victims, information on the other suspect identified in the case is hard to come by as most of the sources had focused on Jerry Leon's Johns. However, what I do know about uh, the other suspect is that at some point throughout the investigations occurring in the late 80s to early 90s, um, there was an investigation into a man. Uh, he was 32 years old and he was a truck driver and he had been interrogated after he had been accused of sexually assaulting a young girl with red hair in Indiana. Um, again, I'm not positive why there's such little information on this suspect. I personally, I'm not sure if you guys would have any more luck, but I couldn't even find the name of the second suspect. Um, but I, so I can't even find whether he was sentenced for the, um, for the sexual assault he was accused of, but I do know that they found enough evidence that they felt comfortable uh, releasing him from being a suspect. I know I said that wrong. I couldn't find the right words. <laughs> um, so despite having not very much information on the second and only other suspect of the redhead murders in 2019, um, further evidence had surfaced that suggested that the first suspect, Jerry Leon Johns, 
who had died in prison after being convicted of attempted murder, was also responsible, or at least connected to, the death of Tina Farmer, who was the second or third confirmed victim of the Redhead murders. When searching for new leads in this case, um, investigators were pulling out old evidence from it, such as the clothing of Tina Farmer after she was identified, um, and they were looking for DNA on her clothing. So on the clothes, as well as the blanket that she had been wrapped in in the refrigerator, they had discovered that there were semen samples with DNA still intact. So upon analyzing the DNA and running it through the state's national DNA database, uh, it did come up that it uh, was highly similar. I can't say matched because, you know, science. Um, But it was highly similar, very likely the DNA of Jerry Leon Johns. Unfortunately, as mentioned previously, they couldn't get any further information about Jerry Leon Johns being involved with Tina Farmer's death, as well as the attempted murder of the other woman, uh, because he has been deceased for four years prior to this new evidence coming out. So besides two suspects and the little bit of evidence found with each of the victims, there's really been no leads in this case besides the occasional um thankfully there are still some victims being identified to this day um but besides this it's been very cold for decades uh, with not even the identity of many of the victims available so as i was saying earlier although these cases do have many similarities uh such as the victims most of them having red or red-ish colored hair, as well as being found along the highway, major highways in um, a couple of the same connecting states. Um, that's about where the similarities end between all of the victims. Uh, because some of the victims were found fully clothed, while some of them were found partially clothed or even nude. Uh, some had been sexually assaulted, but others hadn't been. Most of them were strangled or suffocated. Some of them they couldn't find how they were killed. And another one had died due to blunt force trauma. Uh, And even the FBI to this date hasn't confirmed the number of victims that are uh, related to this case because it is so hard to confirm whether or not these cases are truly connected or merely just a devastating coincidence occurring around this time. So I apologize uh, that I don't have more information on this case. It is a really interesting one, uh, but it is sad, especially considering how many women have still not gotten justice to the point that we don't even know who they are. Um, But I highly encourage our listeners to dig deeper into this and see what you guys think about the connection of the cases and reach out to us and let us know what you find, because I would love to learn more about this. Um, I just need help looking. (laughs) So um, right now, um, according to sources and sort of the FBI, there are six victims that investigators strongly believe are connected. However, many others believe that there's at least 11 and quite possibly more victims related to this case. Um, So that's the case of the redhead murders. Um, It's also said... um, I guess an alias for the redhead murders case, they termed the serial killer suspected in it as the Bible belt killer uh, because of where all of them happened. Um, And all of the unidentified cases 
can still be found through the Doe Network, uh, where you can read about all of the circumstances surrounding them. You can see sketches and other identifying photos and evidence. And there's also contact information on each of the cases for who to reach out to if you think you might recognize one of the victims or have any leads on the cases. So that has been the Redheaded Murders and what we know thus far. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I was just going to say that there's also, like, the Missing Persons uh, website for Canada that I would strongly encourage everyone to go look at, just in case there is someone on there that you can recognize or that you do recognize so that you can let the authorities know and eventually or hopefully return that person home. Um, Yeah, this case is super sad because, like, there's so many victims and there's so many potentially unknown victims or like that we haven't found yet and then they're just not being identified and it's really quite sad yeah like I it's cases like this that make it like it kind of puts into perspective how many murder victims we we don't even know who they are like it's terrible and it's just mind-boggling that people can just like be murdered and no one misses them like how does that even happen that's um, what baffles me the most is when there's just like no source of contact to for them to even be like, oh, I haven't seen X person in a while. Like, right? Yeah. And it's just part. crazy that even like by killing these like unknown people um, or like high risk individuals, the killer got away. Yeah. Like, he may or may not have been the um, like John's. Or um, what was his name? Jer- yeah, it was it was Jerry Leon's Johns. Right. Okay. Um. Yeah, it may not have been Jerry, but like, whoever. If it wasn't him, then they got away, which is absolutely devastating. Um. Well, with uh, this somber mood, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, our next topic is gonna be um. It's going to be focusing on stalking. We're going to do a two-part episode kind of of stalking. So the first part's going to be Patricia Allen and her case. Um, I believe she's Canadian and she kind of, her case led to stalking becoming a crime and kind of the legal precedent behind it. So we're going to kind of go over the history and how it became a thing um, and how like law enforcement was involved. And then for the second part, episode we're going to do um like different typologies of stalking which will be really interesting and then we'll talk about Richard Ramirez um or the night stalker right yeah yeah and so that one will also be very interesting um I do have a joke it kind of sucks but it kind of always say that and they're always good I know (laughs) I was gonna say we all of our jokes are always bad we say that and they're always amazing they're always good so this one's kind of like it's not a question. It's like a, I want to say like a play on words, kind of. Okay. Okay. Um, after a fire, the corpse of a man is found in a burned out warehouse. The investigation found that he had first set a fire, ate an excessive amount of salt, and then used a contraption to bury himself in tons more salt, I'm assuming. Um, the investigators concluded that his self-preservation instinct must have kicked in. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> right? It's kind of silly, but kind of funny. 
And for those of you who don't know, listen to our mummy episode and how salt <laughs> can preserve your body. <laughs> um, yeah. So with that being said, Nicole, where can people find us? Um, people can find us all over the place. Um, they can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Um, we are most active on Instagram and Facebook. We're also on Twitter at WT Forensics PC. And you can get a hold of us. Um, we've got a contact form on our website, which is whattheforensics.ca. We've also got a couple um, cups and mugs on sale right now if you want to put an order through there. And we're always um, available to chat through our email, which is whattheforensics at gmail.com. Um, yeah. All right. Um, well, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you guys enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Bye. 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 <laughs> just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week. Thank you.